let's say you're live. Oh. We're live. We're live. <laughs> Heather on my team told me stop saying that, but I can't help but marvel at technology, right? Like that we can just create our own little TV show here because we felt like it. Isn't it incredible how, you know, I what I find fascinating about this, you know, throughout history, there are certain changes that happen slowly over time and evolve. And then there's these drastic changes that are forced upon us. I think what COVID has really done is forced digital transformation on companies and human beings. Like, look at us. We're live. We're on video. We're working from home, remote access. It's it's the future. Way, and, we're, and we're over 40 and we're doing it, which is the most remarkable part, right? Because I think anybody, you talk to anybody in their 20s and 30s was like, yeah, Boomer, like we had it this entire time. You just didn't know it. But that's what it's done. In three months, it's compressed the complete evolution of this technology, right? And, uh, and an interesting part is we won't really feel the full effects of it for, for we won't be able to really look back and understand how it changed things for another year or two. And so, you know, when you think about, so I agree with you, the world has changed forever. But I think part of what makes business so challenging is you're forced to be, you know, some days I feel like I'm that, you know, I've got that thing on my head and I have this little shop and I'm reading the tea leaves in the future. Because I think in business, sometimes you got to go with your gut feel and you got to believe in your version of the future when nobody else might. Mm. So if you look in your crystal ball, Matt, and we look at the repercussions of this, how does this affect things like real estate? Does real estate in big centers go down and remote farm real estate go up? What do you think? Uh, I have to be diplomatic because I have so many friends and partners in real estate, but just to sort of give oh, you- that's true. Right? right, I'm gonna just give it to you straight anyway, because I can't help it. Um, I do think we're gonna see a reallocation in a couple of key ways. I had a friend who runs a state farm insurance agency, right? And he has seven employees. And one of the first things he said, probably three weeks in, and he's curmudgeoning, was against employees working from home. Three weeks in, calls me up and says, you know what, this is kind of working. So why would I have, why? It's so hard for me to make a dollar. The margins in my insurance brokerage industry are very low. So hard for me to make a dollar. But if I can keep a dollar by reducing my insurance, uh, my real estate footprint by 60 to 70%, and I've already decided I'm only going to have two employees in the office at any one time and the other five will work remotely, swap back in once every two weeks, we'll do a get together. If my friend, my, my friend from Queens, you know, who's not exactly always on the cutting edge of, of transformation is looking at the world that way. To me, that was just a sense or, or a symbol of what's going to happen writ large. So I think one change is for sure. People don't like to have expenses unnecessarily. So if you know you can reduce your real estate footprint and that's one of your biggest fixed costs, you're going to reduce it. And that is going to enable somewhat, I think, of a shift from urban to suburban uh, real estate. It just makes common sense, right? Like, why wouldn't you? It's cheaper. Right. But what I think it's interesting, like I look at us and for a while there, I'm like, I'm never going to have an office again. This is great. But now I think as we realize a certain level of stability in the future, I will always have an office because people will go back. Will I have as much office space? My thought is I'll probably have less physical square footage, but nicer space. Right. Meaning I want my people to work in a great environment and so on. So I don't know if my cost will necessarily go down, but I'm in a business where 74% of my cost is payroll. So real estate, even though it's expensive relative to my kind of business, it's really not a big chunk of my cost. 
Right. But I think like I've been talking to a lot of friends who own restaurants or gyms. And in their case, the bulk of their cost is physical real estate. So I think I think that component changes. How do you think that customer uh, connections change? That's like that's a great I, I um you know, I mean, like in the past, if we're doing business, part of the cadence in my industry is I want to come and see you, take you out for lunch, build a relationship. How do I build a relationship with you if I can't see you? I was just having this conversation this morning because, uh, you know, lately I can't stand Zoom, by the way. I, I, I just I'm happy to use Zoom when Zoom is necessary. But I think there's something to be said for freeing up your mind and going for a walk. I'm a big meeting and walk person. So I had a meeting this morning with uh, the head of operations for one of our companies called Bluestone Lane. You probably know Bluestone. Love them. Right. So and we have 50 units around the country. We're hard hit. We had 20 units in New York. So watching this scrappy company try to stay alive and survive and continue doing what they're doing and manage all employee issues, keep morale up. So we basically ended up with 14 units that we kept open with a staff of two people just to ensure so you, that throughout. So what did you do with the other one? So you had, what'd you do with the other 36? Well, the, the central business district ones were impossible to make work. There was just nobody, nobody working. So there's no, so those were, were closed, but our, our mandate was twofold. One, keep as many people employed as we possibly can. And also just try to establish a nostalgic connection with people during the pandemic or they would remember you were there for me for a cup of coffee. So we converted everything into, you know, grab and go, which is something we hadn't been doing. We were a sit down cafe. So pivot number one, got to create grab and go. Pivot number two, got to create an ordering system to be able to get people to come up. And that's not even forgetting about all the safety protocols. Our entire company is built on this notion of human connection, human connection between us and the customer, right? And we were talking this morning that you know, we're having to reinvent ourselves where we're not about human connection between us and you. We're about human connection in a safe and health environment between you and whoever you want to go see. So we're we're working, we're going to roll this out in two weeks, a completely contactless environment where you can come to a Bluestone Cafe, sit outside with whoever you want to see because we all want to escape. But you know that you're in a safe, healthy environment because this minimal frictionful environment, you know, you're not worried when the when your staff comes up to you five times and sometimes they're wearing a mask and gloves and sometimes they're not. So what's fascinating about, to your point, the legacy of this, even just going for a walk with our head of ops, thinking, think how much change we had to usher in in three months that when we look back, we'll have probably transformed the company for the better. Like I, I felt for the first time this day, this will have been the reason why this ends up being an enormous company because you had to force yourself to evolve your technology to meet this new standard. And, and now we're thinking, Okay, now we're competing on health and safety. Isn't that interesting? Whereas we were competing before on so interesting on connection, right? And I think, but last point, and uh, one thing that I do, I am kind of concerned about is if there is a second wave. I don't feel like there's enough emphasis out there. Is what does a business owner do if there's an outbreak or a case or anything? I don't feel like there's a nearly enough talk about that. So I, I just talked to a couple people that own restaurants and that industry this week, and and in general, here's my view on it. I think, first of all, if you've survived up until this point, right. virtual high five. Like, we go here. like, honestly, Matt, you as a small business owner or any size business owner, if you've survived, you should feel proud. Yeah. Like, we just went through the worst economic thing since the Great Depression. And you could argue it's even worse than the Great Depression because the Great Depression didn't happen overnight yeah right so 
So point number one is if you've survived, you should feel very proud of yourself. Number two, if you've grown during this time, you're a unicorn. <laughs> like you're a fluffy purple colored unicorn in the wild. So you should be very proud of that. But a lot of people are asking me, is it coming back? What it's going to look like? Is there going to be a second wave? And I think the reality is nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. Here's what I'm confident of. The government is not going to shut the economy down again to the degree they did. I think even if there is a second wave, it'll be a limited shutdown, meaning social distancing, um, not as many people in restaurants or gyms. But I don't think we're going to go through the complete cessation again. So what I'm trying to look at businesses, including ours, is conservative optimism, meaning don't don't ex don't put your business in a position where you need a miracle or stability for that decision to be true. Hmm. Don't invest ahead of the curve because you don't know what the curve's going to look like. And so I think for us, what we found is, you know, last year I would look at and say, you know, Q4, I really think business is going to grow in this area. Let me make these investments. Now I'm like, okay, if I believe that business is going to grow in Q4, let me first see it grow and then I'll make the investment because there's just so much uncertainty. And so it's that level of conservative optimism. And I think that's the biggest difference for us is because it could get bad again and the economy could go down again. And we just don't know. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I agree with you. The one known unknown is that the government won't react the same way. There's just too much pressure. So they, they will not shut down to the same extent. I think every business owner, look, normally in a crisis, you'd like to rely on the government to skate to where the puck is going. And you sort of wait back for prescriptions right. to be handed up down from the mount and you wait for your marching order. This is not happening here. Part, right. partly, partly because government has underperformed and partly because it's just so catastrophic. So I think everybody has to be a little bit of their own amateur detective. And you have to look beyond the borders of the United States. You have to be reading what is going on in South Korea. I, I look at South Korea, Singapore, and Germany as kind of my test cases right. to figure out where things are going to well, come. And then I think you have to apply that for your business. Exactly. Because like, what, nobody, I mean, right. But to your point, yeah. you know that no one, the government isn't going to be shutting things down again. But you also right. know that you still have an obligation to provide a safe and healthy environment. And there's going to be outbreaks. So trying to figure out what is being done elsewhere and do a little bit of prior planning. I think what concerns me now on the small business front, and let's look at New York, for example. Uh, there was a moment a couple of weeks ago, it reminded me of the mission accomplished moment with George Bush on the, uh, you know, after the Iraq war, right? The banner went up, you know, right. we, in New York, we're feeling a little bit mission accomplished-ish and uh, it just feels like one third of the movie in, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I agree. I don't think this movie's over. I don't think it's halfway through so I and think we don't know. So what I'm trying to do is rather than wait for it to be handed down, do my research, understand what happens as when an outbreak in other in other countries, and just be ready. But I like your point. If you want to fix yourself to some something that you could probably believe in, is it's not going to be shut down, you know, again. But that doesn't relieve yourself from the obligation to handle, you know, a ran, you know, an outbreak and whatnot. But, I I wanted we just got a question in the chat. Is okay. now a good time to start a business? And I'm curious to see what you think about this. So let me tell you my personal yeah, experience. Please. I've, and this wasn't because I'm smart or I thought of this. It just 
timing. Every business I've started, I started during a really bad economic time. And here's the one thing I love about starting a business during this time. People don't BS you. Mm. What I love about starting a business now is people are under pressure. It's highly risky. And what I love about it is if I call a customer now and they're not going to buy from me, they're going to tell me. Right. Whereas I think when everything is going well and things are rosy, we all have extra time. People waste my time. And I think one of the greatest challenges of starting a business is avoiding happy ears. Because every business owner fundamentally is an optimist. Like, think about it. You leave your job, you put your personal savings. Like, to start a business, you have to be an optimist. Right. But to grow a successful business, you have to be a realist, but never lose your optimism. And what I find is a lot of small business owners waste their time. So they work on 10 opportunities and nine are never going to happen. So just the other day, I was pitching this idea to a, a big company and I sent them this big long email and they said, oh, really appreciate it, thanks. Let's think about it. They came back to me the next day and said, yeah, it's not gonna work for us. I actually sent them an email and I said, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you telling me a firm no, because most people give me a fake yes. Yes, we'll think about it. Yes, send me more, you know, send me another proposal. Yes, can we get on a call to talk about it? Now people are worried about survival. So I think from that perspective, this is a great time to start a business because people are going to be brutally honest with you. What do you isn't think? That isn't that a, first of all, isn't that amazing how people think you're you're doing something kind to somebody by being passive and never tell, not telling them the truth? I, th I always say, people ask, what's the keys to your success? You get asked the same question and any given day, it's a slightly different answer. But on my list of five things is being highly intentional with my time. And I do piss off a lot of people along the way who want to get access to me, but I have to make a relative choice. So when I bullshit somebody- It's funny you say that. I think somebody just asked me the other day, what's the biggest difference between you today and you 20 years ago? And exactly to your point, Matt, I think the one thing- that hair is still perfect. So what, what is the difference? Well, the hair is the same. But I think the biggest thing I've had to learn is to be firm with my no. Mm. Because I think inevitably I'm a nice guy and I want to help people. And so I waste people's time un unintentionally. Whereas a, the one quality I've really had to learn is to tell people, no, I'm not going to do this. It's not going to work for me. And I think that's one of the biggest things the business owners have to, because it's easy to chase every opportunity. Right. And the smaller you are, the more focused you have to be with your time. And I think for me, I don't know if you are like I cycling through my evolution of being more intentional and direct is that what I find is it would just get pent up in me anyway. And then I'd get angry that I'm wasting my time instead of having just dealt with you directly. But back to the big question of is now a good time to start the business? Uh, well, number one, partly depends on which business. If you're telling me it's a brick and roll or fast casual, I'm probably going to say simmer down. But but otherwise, I think for sure, any time of massive disruption comes massive opportunity. I always believe 
you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction and another window opens up. There are windows that, that are opening up all over the place right now. And it, that's okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We're not meant to stay on our heels and be beaten down. We're meant to rise back up again. So telemedicine and all this outsourcing of labor. I mean, imagine how big virtual assistant businesses are going to become, right? Because like you can go on and on. So I think the answer is yes. Also, sometimes when you when you learn how fragile the world is, you become a little less afraid of the worst case scenario. You are living the worst case scenario. Your nightmare has right. come through, right? So now all the things we were always afraid of, like what might the apocalypse look like? Well, we just experienced it. And we're still here. You and I are still talking. And a lot of people are obviously suffering. But sometimes I think when the worst comes to reality, you realize like, all right, I, I got with, I know I went through some personal challenges and divorce and cancer. And when I always came out the other side, I said, well, that didn't destroy me. I'm still here. And I think your appetite for risk actually increases every time you go through that. So my answer is it's a, it's a great time, but I probably would always say it's a great time to start a business, you know, but certainly not a, not a reason not to start a business. Do you think we're going to see fundamentally different pitches on Shark Tank this year? Oh, I think so. Don't you? I mean, I think, uh, on the one hand, it's got to be, I would imagine, more e-commerce pitches, right? right. Uh, that, that just make more sense. I mean, people people, people think that there's a lot more theater. I mean, you've been on for so long, right? I've had the honor of being on a couple of times, but that uh, there's so little theater involved in it when you think there would be more. The money's real. The competition is real. You know, I mean, I've seen your feisty side come out, right? <laughs> like, there's- yeah, no, I, You know, we've been doing it for 12 years and- uh, But so if, just- the deals, if the deals are like you're getting pitched, you know, things that don't make sense that are probably real estate heavy or that are sort of off trend, yeah. you're not going to do the deal. So then the question is, what's interesting? Ecom, telemedicine, you know, we probably, you and I could probably come up with the top five categories. I, I, I think the one interesting thing, and you're an expert at this, I'm curious to see what you think. I did an Instagram live with a friend of mine, uh, Danny Reese, who founded Canada Goose, mm. you know, the jackets. Yeah. And he had a very interesting point. You know, sometimes people tell you something and you kind of store it in the back of your mind because you don't know what, yeah, because you don't know what to think about at the time. And so I feel like my mind has this filing cabinet of ideas, which I'm ruminating on. And one of the things he said is that, uh, what did he call it? Micro retail. Hmm. He thinks that micro retail will flourish, meaning department stores will die but very specific retailers that have a strong brand will grow both online and physically. And so his example was Lululemon. He said, you're gonna go to a Lululemon store to get Lululemon stuff if you want Lululemon. Hmm. So he thinks a brand like that, that's strong, has a very clear, like when you think Lululemon in your mind, it's a very clear brand. Right. When you think Canada Goose, it's a very clear brand. You know, your cafe, the Australian guys, to my wife, is a very clear brand. Right. So if she knew there was one opening in our area, regardless of the economic situation, she would clearly go to that. And I think brands that have that can continue to grow market share on a retail brick and mortar basis because I want to experience that brand. Like I want to go to a Lululemon store or a Bluestone Cafe, or, or I want those experiences. What do you I, think about that? I think you're 100% correct. You know, we uh, did a course, teach a course, co-teach a course at HBS called Moving Beyond Direct-to-Consumer. And it's all about what's gonna to happen to physical retail. How does a brand that only exists online 
migrate to the you know the real world, right? And I think some problems with the real world are if you're a scrappy little DTC brand that is beloved and has only existed online, you can't take a ten year lease and you can't spend the money on build out. You're not going to take that level of risk. But what you just said, and there's a bunch of studies proving out what you just said, that uh, when a brand can can interact with somebody in the real world and you could touch it and you could feel it and there's a human connection, your amount of returns go down dramatically, right? And your customer acquisition costs go down dramatically. It's been proven out. So there'll always be a need for uh, beloved brands to exist in the real world. The question I think is more is the old model of retail doesn't work. They're not taking down these big right. leaps. And yet the old model of Macy's doesn't work either because that's kind of a, that doesn't let brands live, right? So I think the winner is something like a show fields or neighborhood goods. These great environments that are heavily curated that almost feel like a museum of retail where you can go and interact with a brand on a hundred square feet and feel their DNA come to life, but they don't have to take down this massive, you know, CapEx commitment. It's, it's so well said, you know, we did an investment last year on uh, Shark Tank with a company called Bad Birdie. Okay. And so they make, and, and I seem to have become like the guru for these cool niche clothing type of things like tipsy elves and so well, on. You are a very stylish man. I mean, I don't want like the elephant. It's in the true. Room, but you're, wearing, you're wearing this, but you still look great. <laughs> it, well, mind you, the bar is not very high. I'm wearing my shorts, but I said, I got to look good for you up top. <laughs> the bar is not very high on Shark Tank for being stylish. That is oh, man. Let's that be is honest. But so these guys are a brand and the and the core of their brand is they make very cool golf shirts. But the brand is not a golf shirt. It's about being a rebellious, cool, young-minded, hip golf shirt. So the idea is this is not your grandfather's golf shirt. You know, and the patterns are bold and exciting and it's got this great material. But the brand is very clear and they have a very cool logo, Bad Birdie. You would think during this downtime that their sales would have suffered, right? Golf courses aren't open. People are golfing. Their sales are increasing. Mm. And it's because it's such a cool brand. People are buying it as gifts. Hey, when we come out of this, here's a cool hip way. So I, I think my point is don't give up on traditional stuff. Because one of the frustrations people are saying to me, well, I'm a clothing guy. I don't know e-commerce. Does that mean I'll never be able to start a business? I'm like, no, every business will continue to exist in some form. You just have to adapt. Well, so I there's nothing wrong. And to that yeah. person, I mean, Number one, I always said to people, if you don't know e-com, you just don't have an excuse. Because if you have an internet connection and a computer, you can figure out. I did a master class with Sabir. It's on my LinkedIn. That that alone is like a million dollar one hour seminar on, on e-com. So I don't think we have, no one has an excuse anymore. The interesting part, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but let's say e-com was scheduled to grow or projected to grow 3%, right? And it's going to grow 18% this year. Amazon, there's some chinks in the armor now because people had to go to their beloved brands to shop because Amazon had fulfillment issues. But two, their beloved brands down to the mom and pop store had to figure out how to sell things online, how to do SEO and how to how to figure out. Interesting that the world, that Amazon you know, uh, ecosystem where they had a iron grip at it, right? Had they, some of that has, uh, has, has cracked. So I think it's never been a greater opportunity for brands to compete with Amazon, be able to go direct because Whoever it was that was holding out, you know, on shopping e-com, they're not holding out anymore, 
right? I had a conversation with somebody's friend, you know, my mom was always afraid to put her credit card in. She's 78, you know, she never wanted to do it, but she had no choice. And now she's like, this is delightful. It all comes in the UPS, you know? So I think there's, a, there's opportunities I, now for every business to go directly to consumer. I think that is so well said because my vision of the future is yes, Amazon will eat the world, but if we really think about it, Amazon is a department store. Right. And I'm not gonna get the experience I want with a brand I know and have a connection with on Amazon. So if we go back to the Lululemon or Canada Goose as an example, if I could buy a Lululemon outfit on Lululemon's website versus Amazon's website, I will always go to Lululemon right. because it gives me that experience. I'm just using that as an example, but I think that to your very, very, that's a very good point. Don't assume just because Amazon's taking over the world, they're a distribution center. Amazon is not a creator of businesses. Amazon is a fulfillment center. That's, that's the magic of Amazon. And there'll always be a place for them, obviously. But that doesn't mean your small business cannot exist on its own. And I think that with a big competitive advantage that Amazon had is or has, but can be chipped away at, is that more than half of all product searches for any product anywhere take place on Amazon. So it's actually a massive search engine. But as people's psychology changed during these last several months, they'll start saying, wait, I could, I know Lululemon presumably sells direct. Why do I have to go to Amazon, right? So I think the challenge for any company now, how do you stand out from that both tactically and, 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 uh, and qualitatively? So tactically meaning, how do you make sure that your site is optimized and your search functions are optimized to pull in that demand? And then how do you make it a delightful experience that isn't just throwing up a website? You know, I think that's such a great point. I, I'm with you. I see Amazon almost like a search engine. You have to sell on Amazon if someone's searching for it. But right. don't assume people are going to fulfill on Amazon if your product and brand is unique enough to, to go to on your own. Matt, do you think people are going to travel again? Oh, so it's just the one, look, I'm, I'm a, you'd be surprised. Maybe you, I know you're very extroverted. I'm actually pretty intro, introverted. I, I love people and I love connecting and I like helping people, but I'm also equally happy to be alone for, you know, three days and just think and, and hang out with my, my wife. So I, I'm happy nesting. I miss travel more than anything. I miss, I'm in airports a lot. I'm all over Europe. I just love travel. So I will travel as soon as humanly possible, but I'm not traveling now. Hmm. So I, I don't know. I'm with you. I love travel, but I'm very nervous about staying in a hotel. Yeah. Well, that's because, because I'm grappling with this a little bit. I'm grappling with this. My, you know, my wife did a great job. We were kind of hunkered down saying, let's try to avoid contracting COVID if we can, obviously, and take it seriously for a variety of reasons. Um, a cancer survivor and just, you know, who knows, right? Um, but now we're beginning to act as if the threat has abated without being sure if the threat has really abated. Because all it takes is one exposure, right? And so we're well, thinking, it's, you want to take a road trip too and go, you know, whatever, a few hours away and stay in a hotel. I was like, but does that make sense just yet? We we were kind of lulling ourselves because I think like everybody listening to this, it's been so long. And so we were kind of thinking, oh, it's over. It's It's not as real as it used to be. And then just yesterday, we found out that one of our best friends, he's starting filming again, so we have to get tested. That's part of his contract for him to go back on set. He had to get tested and he found out he had COVID. He had no symptoms. Wow. 
yeah, he had no symptoms, nothing. He literally didn't know he had it. But our point is that brought it all back to us that, right. oh my gosh, he had it. So if he had it, how many other people? I think, I think it's going to be a while. I'm very comfortable going places, but I'm very uncomfortable staying at a hotel. And that I, makes me, I don't know when that comes back. I agree. I have a technology question for you, Evan. Me, I've been excited to ask you. Yeah. So I've been um, obsessed with reading about contact tracing and how other countries have done contact tracing. And I think the big difference between the United States and Germany and Korea and whatnot is they have these elaborate contact tracing apps that go a long way to protect your privacy, privacy that utilize Bluetooth so that when you're within a few feet of somebody who has COVID, who gets diagnosed later, and you spend more than 15 minutes, that's how it works in Germany, an alert goes out to everyone that came within contact with that person. And that way you can quarantine and you can and be back. It's worked very effectively in other places. So the US doesn't have a contact tracing solution, a nationalized one, right? So I did a poll the other day, putting it out there, feeling very convicted that we need this and everyone's gonna agree with me, of course, naturally. And then 50% of people were against it for privacy reasons. And I was shocked because I honestly think that's the reason we're struggling so much with overcoming the virus is that we don't have a national contact tracing system. And I know you so, run a big cybersecurity firm, so I'm curious yeah. your thoughts how we overcome that. It's such a great question. And uh, I think we really struggle in North America around privacy. I think we overdo it. I really do. And I think most countries around the world put a greater premium on security and health than privacy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because culturally we think we're more secure than the rest of the world or, or, or what it is, but you know, it's to me, I would rather be safe and secure and I'm willing to give up a certain amount of my privacy for that. And I see that as a trade-off. So, protect me, tell me who has the disease around me, and I will give up my location to you readily and happily. I, I one, I totally agree. And I believe with your logic that it's it's probably that we feel overly secure and therefore can, you know, can put put a premium on that value. Two, I think it's somewhat a false choice. Like 165 million Americans have downloaded TikTok while the United States government is putting out alerts that it's the greatest Don't national security threat. Don't yeah. Right. Horizon and AT&T and Sprint have your text messages saved in some server for the next decade. Like, I don't really get it. And I think that's where government has failed us by not making the case. Well, I think there's another I think there's a very another very unique aspect that we have as, a, you know, that Americans and Canadians have that the rest of the world doesn't is we fundamentally don't trust the government. I think that's true. You, know, you look at Sweden. If the Swedish government comes along and says, you should do these four things to avoid COVID, I think 80% of Swedes are going to say, well, if the government told me to do it, it's probably a good thing for me to do. Contact tracing as an example. Right. I think our natural, we're so skeptical of the government and the nation is so divided that the government said, you should download this contact tracing app because it's good for the country. I think the knee-jerk reaction is, Oh, you're just going to you're going to use it for some other reason and so on. Yeah, I mean, I was a number of years ago. Uh, I was at a uh, small group, a small conference with the president, President Obama, 
and tech leaders. And I'll never forget, uh, the president asked, do you, how do you guys feel about privacy and, and collecting private data? And Mark Zuckerberg was there and Tim Cook was there. And Tim Cook used this analogy and said, I have no issue with the government knowing I own a fridge. I have no problem with the government using all their resources to know there's a fridge in my house. But I do have a real issue with the government knowing what's inside my fridge. And until you can convince me that the government, by knowing I have a fridge, but not using that information to get inside my fridge, I don't want to give you my privacy. Mm. And so even at his level, there's this distrust of what the government is going to do with that data. You know, and we probably have a pretty good background of being having been abused for privacy. But I think in this day and age, we have to get to the point where we realize our privacy is going to change forever and it's for the common good. Yeah, I think I think I one I agree with you. It does stem from a distrust of government. It also I think stems from someone not making the case and mitigating what you just said. So agree that people are, are don't feel secure, but there are ways to mitigate it. Partner with the ACLU, make sure that the it's designed in the right way, that the uh, data is anonymized. Use Bluetooth, right, instead of GPS, so it's one-to-one, -one, completely anonymized. But the sad part is unless you have 60% adoption, contact tracing doesn't work, right? So we, right. so Apple and Google partnered up to open up their API, and then I, I don't know, I, maybe there are some states, there probably are, I think Oregon, I'm throwing a couple of places that are using it. But it, to me, that is one of the biggest shames of what's happened. Like, if we could have a national dialogue around privacy, set the right parameters, and institute a contact tracing system, we could get through this. And I just don't know how we get through this until we have a vaccine. And another another 80,000 people are going to die by the end of year, according to those models that are being put out there. So it breaks my heart. You know, I don't know what we do about it other than talk about it openly. You know, um, this is going to trigger all sorts of comments condemning. But but I, I believe in it passionately that we should be we should be looking at every solution from every country to figure this out. Closing thoughts, Matt. Here's my closing thought. Okay. I am highly, highly optimistic about the future. I know when you and I talked last, I was probably a little more one camp or another, but I am so excited about the future. I think to your point, we're standing. We didn't go away during this downtime and I'm seeing the creativity and the hope for the future all around me. And I know these are really hard times on so many levels and I know so many people are suffering, but I'm such a believer in our ability to adapt and human ingenuity and I just think that when we come out of this, the world will be a better place. And of course, I'm such a believer in technology as a great equalizer. And I think if we want fair opportunity for people, you've got to believe in technology in the future. And if anything, the digital transformation is happening as we speak. This is my hope for the future. Well, I love hearing that. And you are wonderfully optimistic and it's hard not to agree with you. And I feel the same way on a couple of fronts, like uh, on the personal front, 
I think we all re just rediscover what really matters to us and we're going to hold on to it and, and, and guard against it. A lot of the polls you see about people, I think, not wanting to go to work or back to the workplace, a lot of that actually is, I want to hold on to this new quality of life balance that I found. So sure. I think when we, when we reach some kind of equilibrium, whenever that is, we are going to do more to, I think, protect those moments with our family, eliminate the friction in our life that didn't make any sense, the commute where possible, right? Less of a premium on fake FaceTime and more of a premium on real meaningful work and meaningful connections with your family. And to your point about technology, it's breathtaking to think that so much of the technology that we're using effortlessly was just sitting on the floor, not being utilized. And it's like, crazy. Right? I remember we were, I remember even our first talk a little on uh, StreamYard. <laughs> what are we doing? And now we have our own TV show, you know, like, and uh, I just think the efficiency that it's going to unlock. And to your point, I believe in technology and the power to create jobs. It makes life easier, increases productivity, and more people are employed. So I think it's going to take a year before we can see it. But I am, I am, I'm not at all pessimistic. I'm ready to go back. That I'm not going to lie about that, right? Like there are days when I get melancholy, like, okay enough. These are very hard conversations, but that's a moment in time. You know, when we look back, this will have a unleashed a breathtaking amount of productivity and a breathtaking amount of new startups that would never have been a creator probably if it didn't happen. So great time to start a business. Thanks, Matt. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Great to see you. All right, everybody. Virtual hug. Virtual hug. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, LinkedIn. Oh, you have